what an interesting man, I suppose. And so, just like that interest is there for him, there's an interest for the book of Revelation. And how many books have written about the book of Revelation? How many books have written about the seven churches of Revelation? How many books have written about the plagues of Revelation? How many books have written about the battle of Armageddon in the tribulation? How many books have written about the millennial kingdom in the in the Revelation? Many, many books. And so great interest in it. And so I think I'm going to go through on Wednesday nights the book of Revelation, taking our time, going slow, looking at all the verses, or many of them. And so we are in chapter 1. Chapter 1. This is part 3. Chapter 1, verse number 3. We've gone two weeks already. We've only gotten up to verse number 3. Isn't that great progress? It's like government work. It takes a long time to get anything done. Verse number 3. Revelation 1, verse number 3. It says this. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now there's three or four different important things I'd like to cover in verse number three. Now the normal interpretation of verse number three, where it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, the most common, the most routine interpretation of this verse is to say that those who read the book of Revelation will get a blessing. And that could be. That could be. It seems almost odd, though, to get a blessing from the book of Revelation, considering the plagues that is in it. But maybe the blessing is that there's a rapture coming. Maybe the blessing is that there's a kingdom coming. But that's the typical interpretation of verse number 3. But I will propose to you some things to think about. When John wrote, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now, uh, if you look at the word blessed in the Bible alone, it comes up many different times. It comes up in both Testaments about 290 times by the count of a concordance. Now, I did not count every word of every, every verse that has the word blessed, but just by trusting what the concordance says, 290 times the word blessed comes up in many different contexts. And so in the book of Revelation, you have several times the word blessed comes up. But let me give you some references, some ideas about how many times the word blessed comes up. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The word blessed comes up in a, in a sense where if you don't do this thing, you'll be blessed if you don't involve yourself with the ungodly. But blessed comes up many different ways in the book of Psalms and also the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have the word blessed coming up nine times. For example, listen to this, Matthew 5, 6. This is familiar to you. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so blessed comes up in that context. So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and so on. Nine, nine times the word blessed comes up in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, blessed comes up in other books of the Bible. But when he says, blessed are those that hear, are those who read, and those that hear the words of this prophecy, does it mean that you only get a blessing from the book of Revelation? Because it says, you'll be blessed if you read it, you'll be blessed if you hear it. Does that mean you don't get a blessing from other books of the Bible because it doesn't say so? Well, I think we understand that um, there's something to understand here about you read the Bible, you get a blessing from it, no matter what book you read. It just so happens it says that in Revelation 1, verse number 3. Now, you can get a blessing in many other books of the Bible. For example, in Psalm 119, look over here with me. Psalm 119. 
you get a blessing from reading other books of the Bible as well, as you well know. Psalm 119, verse number 16. This great long chapter about the word of God, is the word blessed comes up many times. Verse number 16 says, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. The word delight gets our attention because this person is blessed by reading his word. It doesn't say he's blessed, but you can tell that he's blessed by the word delight. Also, look at verse number 24. That's another example. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I don't find him delighting in the word of God if he doesn't get a blessing from it. And just as you get, uh, you are delighted by some verse in the Bible or verses in the Bible other than Revelation, that indicates that there's blessings for us as we read other books of the Bible as well. So we're not restricted to a blessing just by reading Revelation. Okay? Now, I want you to know that when he says that blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, there is a context to all of this. John probably is thinking about certain things. I want to bring this out to your attention. In Acts chapter 13, come over here with me. Acts 13, verse number 13. You have here a reference to reading and hearing. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13 through 15. Beginning at verse 14, but when they, which would be Paul and his company, departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogues uh, of the, on the Sabbath day and sat down. They sat down to do something. The men assembled in the synagogue, they sat down to do something. You know what that something was? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. That probably was a mistake on their part because they get their preaching to them. But here's what you see, you see two things come on. Men came to the synagogue, they sat down to do what? Well, the answer is found in verse number 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men, now, a man stood up to read scripture, while men sat down to hear scripture. So when you read in Revelation 1 about blessed is man that readeth and those that heareth the words of this prophecy, it could be a reference to a practice in the New Testament, a practice going back to the Jews assembling in a synagogue. A man stands up, reads the scriptures, people are sitting and listening. That's the reference, I think, to what he's saying. Now also come to Luke chapter 14 as another reference to the same practice that was very common in Bible days. Luke chapter 4, verse number 14. Uh, after Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, he went to a synagogue, which was a tradition of his in his earthly life and ministry, to be where people were so he could get a word in about himself and about his father. And so he comes to the synagogue, look at verse number 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, his habit. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood for to read. Verse 20. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
what you have here is two things. Number one, he came into the synagogue, took scripture from the Old Testament. He stood for to read. He stood to read. And then those that heard him, they commented on what they heard. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, when John, uh, it says of John, that blessed is he that readeth. Well, that's the idea that you get. Like in Old Testament practices, like in first century practices in synagogues, a man stands up in a synagogue, he reads, and those others are sitting down listening to him. And then they may comment and give opinions about what was heard. And so that's the scenario. A man reads, stands up to read, and then um, other men sit down and they're listening. Here's another scenario. A man gets up to read, another man, another man translates for him to the language of those in that particular location. Here's another scenario. A man gets up to read because he is literate and is reading to people, others who may not be able to read, they are illiterate and they're listening to him. So you get this idea of someone standing up a group of people and he is reading and that remember what Paul said to Timothy by the way I want you to turn to the verse and see the connection here to Revelation chapter 1 verse number 3 I want you to come to oh let's see 1st Timothy chapter 4 1st Timothy chapter 4 see the connection to the words of John to what Paul advised young pastor Timothy 1st Timothy chapter 4 and verse number three, uh, 13, 313. All right. Paul tells Timothy, till I come, give attendance to reading. We take that to mean make time to read your Bible. And that would be true. But I think more strictly speaking, it is make time, not just to read your Bible, Timothy, but read the Bible publicly give attendance to reading now come down to verse number 15 15 tells us also he was to personally read the Bible verse 15 meditate upon these things well if you're reading it you would meditate upon it give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear unto all so you have here a reading publicly where people are listening to you you also have uh, by way of 1st Timothy 4 Paul telling Timothy to read the Bible privately too, and as God teaches you, and you get up there on Sunday to teach publicly, you get to give what God has taught to you and to benefit from that. So that's what you see what's going on. And so, blessed is he, verse 3 of Revelation 1, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And so I think he's making reference to that practice of standing and reading and people sitting and listening. Now, he says in verse number 3 again, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now he also says, um, keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Keep those things. Well, there's a blessing for people to hear the word of God, but then the real blessing comes from not only hearing it, but doing something about it. Remember James chapter one, verse number 22, he says, don't be a hearer only, but a doer of the word. So as as the, as the letters of the Revelation, the letter of the Revelation, the Epistle of the Revelation was read into the seven churches, it would go from church one to church two, and it would, it would carry it to the next church, and then as a man read it in the church, 
of Ephesus and Laodicea and so on. And uh, then you would have this process of standing up and reading it and others sitting down and listening to it. And then it says, but that's not all that you do. You have to practice what it says. Keep those things which are written therein. And so you remember that. You remember that taking action, doing something about the Bible is the more important thing. Come to the Revelation chapter 2. Here's an example of keep those things which are written therein. Keep those things. Practice those things. Don't just in one ear, out the other ear. As it can happen to churches. As it can happen to children. As it can happen to any kind of instruction. In one ear, out the other. And that person doesn't profit from it because that person doesn't digest it. That person doesn't do something with it. Revelation 2 is an example of keeping those things. Look at verses 1 through 5. Revelation 2, 1 through 5. We will get to the seven churches in due time, but this is an example. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say that uh, they are apostles, and are not, and has found them liars, and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake, has labored, and has not fainted. Now those are our commendations. Those are our words of praise for doing a good job, being faithful. But now in verse number four, nevertheless, what's another way of saying nevertheless? However, but, however, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Watch character verse number five. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Now what you see in this example of the church at Ephesus, as he commends them and as he corrects them, he says, remember, remember, therefore from whence thou art fallen. Repent of the things that caused you to fall. And then do the first works. So that's an example of keep the saints of this book. And so as the, as the letter of the revelation was circulated among the seven churches, they were to hear it as someone read it, and then they were to take action on what they heard. Not just hear it and get all excited about it, feel bad about anything. And uh, they were to do something about what they were hearing. All right, verse number three, one three. And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. We talked about this before, and I think I was preparing something, so this is very fresh to my head. Um, the time is at hand. In John's time, in the first century, in the, in the 90s, when he was alive on the Isle of Patmos, as he wrote the Revelation, he said, the time is at hand for what? The time is at hand for what? Well, let's take a look here. In chapter 1, look at verse number 4. Ta-da! Verse number 4. After he says, Thus he that readeth, where he says, The time is at hand. Verse 4. John, the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which was, and which, uh, which is, and which was, and which is to come. Which is to come. In reference to the Lord coming back. So the time is at hand for what? For the Lord to come back. Drop down in that same chapter to verse number seven. 
behold, behold, he cometh. Ah, so he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. We'll stop there. So you get the context of the time is at hand. John believed that the Lord's coming back and he believed in his time he would be coming back. Thus there was an urgency for the churches to not only hear, but they were to practice and do the things that they're supposed to do from the book of Revelation. The time is at hand, Jesus is coming soon. Now what do you say to people who say, yeah, 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 that was John right there in the first century. He hadn't come back yet. What do you say about that? What is a good answer for those who mock and say, yeah, well, you guys have said that for centuries. Now he hasn't come back yet. I guess he's never going to come back. That's what people say today. They're scoffers in the last days saying, where's the sign of his coming? And what is a Christian's answer to that? Sorry? The Lord is not slack. He's not slack concerning his promise as men come slackness, but as long suffering. Now, well, in any should perish, but it all should come to repentance. Maybe the Lord hadn't come back yet because he wants more people to get saved. But there's something else that you can think about as an answer for those who mock the coming of Christ. Hasn't come back yet. Yeah, you folks said that all the time. So what? What's another possible answer? John says the time is at hand. He gave two verses after that, verse 4 and verse 7, that the Lord's coming back. But he hasn't come back. He didn't come back in John's time. He didn't come back. So the logical human understanding conclusion is let's just make believe. But really, it's quite possible he delayed his coming so that another could be saved, another soul could be saved, quite likely so. But also, but also, you can say this. Well, he hasn't come back yet. That just means he's that much closer to him coming back. I mean, 2,000 years have passed since he says coming back. He hasn't come back yet. That means we're that much closer to him coming back. Now, the Lord's not never late, and his time's not like our time. I mean, a day is like a thousand, a thousand is like a day. It doesn't matter to him. For us, it's a long time, but for God, it's like, okay, I'm not ready to come back yet. And, uh, but you're going to come back because the Bible says so it's prophetic and it's going to happen but uh, man thinks differently it doesn't doesn't man think differently we tend to not believe because we don't see it happening but our expectation is not fulfilled so it's not going to happen wrong wrong the Bible is always right and he will come back and John expected him the time is in hand is about the Lord coming back the Lord coming back and so the revelation was written so that the seven churches could hear what someone read in each church. Then they would take action to the Lord's rebuke, the Lord's recommendation, so that they would be right if the Lord came back in their time. So it is time, John is really saying, for you churches, you seven churches, to keep those things that I have written unto you in other words, work for the night is coming when no man can work. Not so much work as in harvest, the field, so on. That's part of it. But the idea is to um, be serious about time because this could be the time, seven churches, that the Lord comes back. That's what it is about. Now look at this. He writes in verse number four, he says this. John, I'm John. I'm writing to seven churches which are in Asia. So he's writing to seven churches, seven real churches. Uh, sometimes as we gave introductory remark two weeks ago, some people think this whole book is allegorical. 
Well, it cannot be because he's writing to seven real churches and he gives you the names of them in chapter two and three. So they are real churches, real places, real locations, real local churches, and he writes to them and they will get a letter and they would circulate that letter to each church until each church has read the letter and each member of that church has heard the letter. And hopefully they would take action to what the letter says to the seven churches. And of course, they would get other things like the prophetical coming up in the tribulation. And so he says in verse number four, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, the next word is very critical. This is almost odd. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come. Now, why is the word grace kind of odd in the introduction to this book of Revelation? Why is that word grace odd? Or it seems odd. It's not odd, but it seems out of place. In the greeting of this letter, he mentions grace. Grace be unto you. Well, let's just quickly say, thank God that God mentions grace here. Because in the beginning of this book, before he gets to the tribulation proper, which would be very horrible as it is detailed, he says, grace be unto you. That's a clue as to what God thinks is very important to him. Do you realize that uh, there's the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and then you have other moral qualities, the, the love of God, the mercy of God and the grace of God. That's all a part of this eternal spiritual being called God who is not out of balance, where he's not all, all justice, all righteousness, all punishment. He is grace, he's mercy, he's long suffering. He balances his nature out. He, somebody has described God as a, a well-balanced spiritual being because he is he's not one or the other. He's a combination of these things. And so he mentions grace here. And it's interesting that he mentions grace because as he will reveal the judgments, he begins in chapter one, God's grace and God's mercy. As a matter of fact, think about this Old Testament chapter, Old Testament book, Exodus chapter, turn with me. Exodus chapter 34. There are several verses I'd like you to think and see concerning the mercy and grace of God in context with the book of Revelation. People only see one side of God, and it's unfortunate that even some Christians only see one side of God, and that's all they that's all they live out. One aspect of God's being, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. Everything is almost like to say no, 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 no. Or if you do this, you're gonna get Whack. If you do this, you're going to get your ears chopped up. If you do this, you get your finger. Everything is a punishment for a transgression. Well, we find that in the Old Testament, but you also find something else in the Old Testament about the nature of God. So you have to have a balanced view of this spiritual being called God. Exodus 34, verse number 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, this is after Moses had broken the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's going to give it to him again. Verse number six. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. That's amazing. Look at verse number seven. 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now there's a lot to say about that verse there, verse number seven. Some people take that verse number seven about uh, iniquities of the children as uh, generational curses. But that's not what he's saying. Let me briefly tell what he's saying about that verse. Um, if one generation sins, the next generation that is uh, born and grows up, if they sin too, then they'll get the same kind of punishment as the other generation. The grand, great-grandpa, he sinned in his lifetime. Okay, he got punished for that. Grandpa sinned in his lifetime. He got punished for that. Daddy punished for his sins. And children, if you sin as well, you can punish for his sins as, as well. So that's what he's talking about. And another reference talks about every man shall pay for his own transgressions, not for the transgressions of a previous generation. And so there's no such a thing as a generation of curse or you being punished because of your great grandfather's sins. And so you have to go through your house and get all these documents and things and pray over them and, and put holy water or have some kahuna come by and do whatever rigmarole thing to, to relieve your house of this curse. It's not a thing like that. And so he's not talking about generational curses, but God does punish sin. That is for sure. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Verse number 31. 431. The emphasis in these verses is God says that he is what he is. And he says, for the Lord thy God is merciful, is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which is where unto them. Uh, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, verse number 43. Says this. <clears throat> Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Uh, these are great verses about the mercy and the grace and the long-suffering of God. Yet it does not relieve, it, it does not cause God to not punish when it is warranted. So when he does punish, you just imagine this now. And try to harmonize this. If, if people say, well, if God is merciful and long-suffering and merciful and gracious, how can he punish his people? I thought he'd just forgive them and have mercy on them and pity them and not punish them. Well, he did punish them. But just think of this. If he was not merciful, if he was not gracious, what would the punishment have been like if he was not merciful and gracious and long-suffering? It would be really, really magnified. Now, of course, they died sometimes. Sometimes he, the chastisement seemed to be very, very complete, very severe. Achan, remember Achan? Well, his punishment was very severe. But yet he still says he's merciful and long-suffering. So I'm thinking the mercy of God comes into play where he still, in some way, has not chastised totally like he could in all of his wrath and justice because of his mercy. Now, uh, Psalm 78. Let's look at Psalm 78. Oh boy, Psalm 78 is a long psalm, but as I was looking over the psalm again, I'm thinking, oh boy. 
how could God have been merciful to the Jews, his own people? Psalm 78. Let's take a little bit of time just to look at some of the verses. But I think if you spend some time before next Sunday reading the verses yourself, Psalm 78, you have 72 verses. It's a long song. We won't go through every verse, but you get the drift. You get the theme here. Psalm 78. Uh, the whole idea is that Israel provoked God to anger so that he would chastise his people, but he did it in mercy. Psalm 78. You'll notice um, this is a song of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He's getting the attention of the hearer. Verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Now drop down to verse number 6. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who shall arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So the pattern will be, he writes about their history and how their forefathers were so unbelieving and so rejected God's word and rejected the person of God himself, and yet he still blessed them. And you will read in this chapter, how he rained down manna from heaven, how he opened the Red Sea for them, and how all this miracles for them, even though he was so upset with them. It's because of his mercy and his grace that he was able to do that. And look at verse number 56, just to give you another idea. We'll skip a lot of verses here. Verse 56. Uh, let's back up to verse number Uh, 48 he gave them uh, up he gave up their cattle also to the hail and the flocks to hot thunderbolts isn't that interesting hot thunderbolts this is the judgments on Egypt verse 49 he cast upon them the fierceness of his anger wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them he made a way by his uh, to his anger he spared not their soul from death but gave their life over to the pestilence and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to the mountain, this mountain which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them and divided them an inheritance by line and made tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet, yet, after all of that, they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, but they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was raw and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among them. 
delivered his strength unto captivity, his glory into the enemy's hand. He gave his people over also unto the sword, and he was wroth with. Now, he's still full of mercy, remember? But he let this happen as chastisement to his people. The fire consumed the young men, verse 63. The minutes were not given to marriage. Verse 64, more trouble. 65, smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He put them to a perpetual approach. Um, so you find here that verse 72, so he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them Still, after he was so upset with them, still he guided them, brought them through, still he watched over them, protected them, fed them, cared for them, gave them the land. Still, after all these things that they did against him, that's long-suffering and mercy and grace. They did not deserve anything, but still God blessed them. So go back to Revelation. Grace, grace be unto you. Grace be unto you, one four. Thank God for his grace. In mercy, he chastised them. Now, the mercy and fear of God, both aspects are real. Both aspects are needed uh, in people to understand to help them turn to God. For example, in Jude verse 21, it says this, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, for, for, people, for people today, when you deal with them about being saved, sometimes what they really need to feel is the love of God. For other people, what they need, really need to feel is the, the fire of hell if they don't get saved. Look at verse 21. And some have compassion, making a difference. Some people are turned to the Lord because they see that you really care for them. They see that you really have a concern for them. You're not after their money, but you're after their soul, and you want to help them. You can't help them. And they sense that, and they turn to God because of that. I was listening to Mari's testimony about how she got saved. You know that Eric had a really major part in leading her to Christ? And uh, she's telling me about her background and how she was raised. And then she said, at the workplace, the work environment, Everybody's doing their own thing. They're busy. He does come by, say hello, and talk to her, small talk. And then uh, she first was suspicious of him. <laughs> and then later on, she began to think, because of his questions, the way he's asking questions and the nature of his questions, she began to think, you know, this guy is nice. He really, really has interest in me. He really cares for me. And that was the beginning of her coming to church. That's the beginning of her patiently listening to him and so on. She got saved because she really believed that he cared for her. Look at the verse, and of some have compassion, making a difference. And then you have other people that would not respond to that kind of treatment. There are some people that would, would think, you know what, you're a weak person. I can take advantage of you because you're so forgiving. And you know, people are like that today too. There are people who take advantage of your goodness and your long suffering. You keep giving them money, you keep giving them food, you keep giving them stuff, and they just abuse it. They think nothing of. They think you're just a pushover. I'll go back to the same block, same corner, same place, and I'll keep asking my handles. This guy keeps coming by on the way keeps giving me all kind of money. I got a hundred bucks out of him this month. What a nice guy, sucker. But you're just trying to be compassionate and kind. It doesn't work for some people. For some people, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. 
And so you have a combination of two things. You have that wisdom, which, which I don't want to say it wrong, which gun to use. Which gun to use? Do you use for the, for the bird, do you use buckshot? Or do you use a scope and a rifle? Well, if you're going to shoot birds, you don't need a scope and a rifle, you use a buckshot. Different tools, different equipment, different weapons for different needs. Uh, over at the K-Bay, the air show, there's a gigantic howitzer, 155 millimeter. That thing is so huge. Then you saw some vehicles with the 50 caliber machine gun on the top. And you had another one with a smaller caliber machine gun. Different equipment, different guns, different weapons for different purposes. You don't fire a 155 millimeter howitzer when someone's just 100 yards away. That's a 50 caliber job. That howitzer will shoot, I think the guy's the shell will go for like 29 miles. 29 miles, boom, that thing flies up, 29 miles. 50 caliber, no, that won't go 29 miles. Might go 400 yards, I don't know how far to go, but it'll each do its job. So for some people, they need a lot of compassion, a lot of long suffering. For other people, you gotta get firm with them, explain to them punishment, the wages of sin is death. That's how some people are. Just depends who you're talking with. You can't just use one way to explain people. All right, so look at verse number four, one four. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come. So who is he referring to? Who is supposed to come back? Verse number seven. He come up the clouds, and we actually see him. Who is coming back in the clouds? Oh, Jesus Christ. Now look at Hebrews chapter one. Here's a good verse about the eternal nature of God. Hebrews chapter one. Isn't it kind of amazing how Bible verses are so clear about certain doctrines? And in verse number 10, here's a clear statement about the eternal nature of God. Hebrews 1.10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, whenever that was, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, John 1.1, in the beginning, and thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth. So in the beginning of God's creation, in the beginning, thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. Whenever the beginning was, some have different guesses about it. Some say it's a young earth, 6,000 years old, uh, a young universe. Uh, others say, no, the geological um, strata tells us that it is millions of years and so on. You have different viewpoints about that. Uh, strong case for young earth. And uh, there's reasons for how a young earth, meaning young in time, meaning 6,000, not 6 billion years, is because God probably made everything that looked old. When God made Adam and Eve, were they babies first? And then did they grow up? No, they were made, created out of the dust, whole, full grown. So maybe that's how God created everything. Well, let's say that was. And he says, the heavens are the work of thine hands, thou are they. They what? The earth, 
the heavens, they shall do something. They shall perish. They shall perish. But thou, God, remainest. What a great verse. And they all, his creation, shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall go to goodwill. They shall go into the garbage can because they're no good anymore. But thou art the same, he repeats, and thy years shall not fail. What is he saying? By a huge contrast, the creation of God that seems to be so forever, it is not. Now, in 1970, when I graduated from high school, the Koala Mountain Range looked like it's going to last forever. After all of these years, this is 2022, the Koala Mountain Range looks the same. It looks like it'll never go away. It looks very permanent. The Wyandotte Range looks very permanent. It looks like it'll never go away. The Rock of Gibraltar, it looks like it's all permanent. Well, even the Pyramids of Giza look like it's pretty permanent. But they're not permanent. The most permanent thing that God created is not permanent, but he says, I'm permanent, I'm forever. Which is to say, he was before creation, he's not a part of his creation, and after creation just blows up, melts with fervent heat, he's gonna be there. Hard to, hard to comprehend, but that's what the Bible reveals about the nature of God. And so, God who is eternal, from him, in chapter one of Revelation, from him, let me turn back over here. That is and was and is to come. What do you mean and was? Well, how can God be was? How can in that tense he was? Well, he's talking about his son who was. He did die, wasn't he? Didn't he die? Didn't he not exist physically at one time? And, and is rose from the dead. So that's the resurrection of Christ. And he says that he writes to them, verse 4, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now we have some problems over here, the seven spirits which are before his throne. Uh, the common interpretation is that there are seven spirits and um, the consensus, the conclusion really is we're not sure what the seven spirits are. Now in 5-6 there's another reference to the seven spirits. Look at chapter 5 verse number 6 of Revelation. From the seven spirits which are before his throne. You get this image that there are seven spirits before his throne. Okay, verse number six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into the earth, into all the earth. Now, that's a very strange verse. Revelation has a series of sevens. Seven is a very special number as far as God is concerned. In the study of numerology, the study of numbers, you don't want to get too mystical about it. Uh, there's no good luck or bad luck or magic about any number, but the number seven is God's number of three is the number of completion, seven is the number of perfection. Now, you have a series of sevens uh, seven churches, seven golden candlesticks, seven stars, uh, seven lamps of fire burning. Seven seals, seven thunders, seven angels, seven plagues, seven fires, seven mountains, seven kings. Seven, 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 all over the place in Revelation. It's a very special and unique number. But here we have seven spirits of God. The other cross-reference 
to the seven spirits. I'll just read it to you. It's Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel, might, spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So that's another reference to the seven spirits of God. Now, you can go a lot of different ways about these references and about the seven spirits of God. There is really latitude of our opinions about this. Because for years and for decades and for centuries perhaps, there's really not a dogmatic statement about these seven spirits. It tells us that it's not really clear what these seven spirits are. What we do know, what we do know is that there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. This is the Godhead. These three are one. If the Holy Spirit is manifested in Revelation as seven spirits, how do we think about this? Okay. Okay. If the Holy Spirit is manifested as seven spirits, it comes down, then all I'm going to say is, okay, that's what the Bible says. And so there is room for disagreement about that opinion because it's not really clear what it is. Those two verses are the only two references to the seven spirits. So you cannot be dogmatic about it as if this is it. And um, it's just not that real clear what these seven spirits mean. Could the seven spirits be a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Sure. Are there seven other mystical spirits around doing whatever? Be careful about that. Be careful that you don't get hyper, hyper and come up with some teaching that is now a doctrine. And if someone disagrees with your understanding and your doctrine, you claim everybody's a heretic because you got the insight. Now be careful about that kind of attitude. It's very easy to come in that direction. And so we're not going to create any mysterious doctrine from this seven spirits because we are clear that there is the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, one Holy Spirit. And however he manifests himself to the seven churches, well, that's not me to, to decide, is it? All right, so there's deep things in the Word of God that we don't understand. Even though the book of Revelation is a book of revealing things, there's some things we don't understand, which is just the way it is. All right, now, next time, we will try to get to verse number five. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's a great verse to use for witnessing or to remember what Christ did for us when he shed his blood on the cross. We will pick up on that verse next time and try to get verse five. And verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. We'll try to get those verses next time. All right. It's a good book to study. It's thought-provoking. It makes you think. It makes you wonder. <laughs> now, wondering does not mean you doubt the Word of God. Questioning does not mean you're a doubter, that you're not a Bible believer. There's things that we don't, know, don't really understand yet. But that's okay. There are some things you understand this year that you didn't understand five years ago. It's a it's a, a process of growth, and sometimes you just don't get it until later on. Okay, uh, a third grader does not understand uh, algebra. Neither does an old man understand algebra. But you'll understand algebra later on, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, hopefully. And then after you go into uh, geometry, calculus. Another kind of math, you know, as you grow, as you mature. So there are some many things that's hard to get. 
Maybe somebody comes up and says, hey, you know what? I know what they are. Okay, fine, good. I'm glad you do. <laughs> maybe asking your wisdom and uh, let it rub off of me. <laughs> oh, boy. Wait till we get into the tribulation part. Oh, okay. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this book. And we get a blessing from it as well as other books. And we pray that you give us wisdom, understanding, and you give us balance about the things that we read. Help us to accept what we read as from your word. And if we have doubts, may our doubts not be to the point of saying the Bible is wrong. And so our doubts are because we don't understand, we don't, we don't get it. And uh, I am sure that you will teach us and you will show us in time, scripture with scripture. And so thank you Lord for this book. We're glad that we know the future. We're glad we're a part where we will be taken out of this world before the great tribulation begins. And so we are, are thankful for what we know because you revealed it to us. And we pray that you help us to live for you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.